industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Dr. Zane Horowitz is going to be speaking with you about the Antarctic adventure of Douglas Mawson. Good morning or afternoon, depending where you are. I'm going to be talking about Douglas Mawson. Um, Douglas Mawson may be a name that's not particularly well known uh, to many people in North America. So let me introduce you to him. Douglas Mawson was a geology student in the University of Adelaide in um, Australia. Uh, when his professor, T.W. Edgeworth David, was recruited by Shackleton to be part of an expedition to try to reach the South Pole. And this was uh, his sort of journeyman job where he went down there. Shackleton's team was trying to go directly south to the South Pole, but being a geologist uh, and being uh, working with Edward David, who was also a geologist, Professor, their job was to find the magnetic South Pole, which was really um, nowhere near the actual South Pole, but he had a little bit of geology. So he did that. And he led his, he didn't lead the team, Edgeworth David led the team, brought them to the South Pole. And then Edgeworth David, being somewhat older, got snow blinded and was unable to uh, lead the expedition. So Mawson stepped in, led his snow blinded professor back to base camp, rescued him, and afterwards, uh, both Shackleton, who didn't make the South Pole on that trip, certainly, but uh, both sung his praises as a uh, up-and-coming uh, Antarctica explorer. The next event in in Mawson's life, first of all, here's a, a little picture that was not much of a notoriety here to be displayed in the pack of cigarettes, but here shows the North, the magnetic pole party on the back of a pack of cigarettes that was sort of displayed in Australia at the time and shows that the three of them, Edgeworth David and Mawson and another person reached the magnetic pole. The next event is uh, Mawson went to England and he was trying to both seek funds and advice from the people who were the foremost uh, explorers of the time. Most notably, uh, Robert Falcon Scott was putting together his big expedition to go to the South Pole. And he offered a job as the base camp to Mawson and Mawson turned him down. He actually offered it to him three times. And it was probably a good decision in retrospect because even though Scott got to the South Pole, he was second, Admondson had beat him. And on the way back, uh, Scott and his entire party perished um, in their tents. But Mawson went back to Australia with the blessing of the Royal Geographic Society and the Australian government. And he put together his own expedition. He was actually waiting for Scott to leave so he wouldn't overshadow his expedition. And eventually at the beginning of winter down under, November, 1911, they set sail on the ship Aurora southward. They stopped at this desolate sub-Antarctic island, Macquarie Island, and they let six men there with equipment they had brought with them to set up a relay station so they can radio information back and forth from the Antarctic continent. Their plan was to get to Antarctica, land the remaining men, build a base camp, and then split some overland parties to explore the continent. He felt that area of the continent being directly south of Australia being a geologist, had in incredible mineral wealth and incredible strategic importance to Australia. And his goal was not to seek a pole, but to 
make scientific discoveries and geologic discoveries. So here's tiny little Macquarie Island, almost halfway, more than halfway down between Hobart on Tasmania and Antarctica. And here are the mold crew of the Australian uh, expedition, uh, a bunch of rough and tumble men heading out for the adventure of their lifetimes. So here's the base camp, Cape Denison. They brought all the supplies. There was nothing there when they landed. They had to build all this from supplies on the ship. They put up a few huts and they created uh, ways to eat the huts and stores of food and everything they would need. And then they broke up into their sledging parties. Uh, there were four different sledging parties and this was Mawson's party. He was the leader overall of the entire expedition, but he handpicked the people for his personal sledging party. They took three sledges and 18 uh, husky dogs with them. And the other two people besides Douglas Mawson was Xavier Mertz. Xavier Mertz was a Swiss ski expert. He had, uh, had the ability to ski ahead and sort of reconnoiter the area and be able to help them find their way on the trip out. The other person was Belgrave Ninnis, although he had very little snow and Antarctic experience. Uh, uh, he was the son of an Arctic Navy uh, uh, surgeon and he was up for this big adventure himself. His area of expertise was he had learned how to handle husky dogs and was an expert at that form of transportation. So off they went. They were gonna go from Cape Denison, heading due east, traveling up past what is now named Mertz Glacier and Ninnis Glacier. And their goal was to go as far as they could and then come back. They had instructed the ship's captain, whose name was Gloomy Davis, that he must leave by February. Otherwise, they'd get stuck with the icebergs and not be able to uh, get out of the Antarctic continent as winter started moving in. And the other three, four parties all had instructions to return by February. So the sledging party goes off. And sometimes they pushed it. Sometimes they rode on it. Um, th there was three sledges to begin with. They as some of the dogs ran away, they uh, cut this down to two sledges They packed all their food, almost two tons of food and equipment and tents and stoves with them, and they were off. And they battled what was called catabotic winds, these 90 mile an hour winds blowing little bits of ice into their face. And the rough ridges were called sastrugi, these ice sharp ridges that they had to bounce over and over again. And they passed over these land, uh, these snow bridges that covered up these deep crevasses and they learned how to transverse them. But unfortunately, there was the first disaster that occurred on December 14, 1912. Ninnis, uh, the ski expert, stepped off his sledge, was on top of this thin ice bridge that they didn't know was there, and he disappeared into the crevice. He had a rope around him and backward pulled the sledge that he was tied to and with it, six of the strongest dogs, and they were gone. He plummeted on that sledge was the food supply or the bulk of it, the sturdier of the two tents they were carrying and half of their transportation. They yelled into the crevice. They dropped some ropes. They tried to, everything they could to try to figure out if he was alive or if they can go down and get him, but all to no avail. And they stood there devastated. And they realized they were a long way from home. They recalculated their rations. They dropped it down by a quarter from 34 ounces per day to eight ounces per day. They realized 
how far they had marched and how far they could march and what they had left. They did some calculations and they knew besides eating the remainder of their rations, they needed to essentially use their means of transportation as a means of substance. And the first night, one of the dogs who was already sick and weak and couldn't really go on was killed and they ate it. And in his journal, Mawson notes, it was a happy relief when the liver appeared that was easily chewed. Over the next 23 days, both Mertz and Mawson tried to make as far distance as they can, but sometimes they didn't go anywhere near their, their goal. They only made three miles a day, again, fighting catabatic winds and sastrugi ridges and um, their weakness. Uh, they had to essentially uh, sacrifice their dogs and their dogs became food for them. And then Mawson realized that Mertz was not progressing as well. He started getting sick with GI symptoms and nausea, diarrhea. And eventually on January 8th, Mawson writes in his journal, uh, during the afternoon, he had several fits and it's delirious. And he fills his trousers again and again and I clean him out. He is he's very weak, becoming more and more delirious, rarely being able to speak coherently. At 8 p.m., he raves and breaks a tent pole and I, I hold him down, he becomes more peaceful and I put him quietly in the bag. He dies peacefully around 2 a.m. on the morning of the 8th. He has lost all the skin of his legs and his private parts and I am in the same condition and the sores on my fingers won't heal. So there Mawson was alone on the ice. He had made it maybe halfway back to the camp he had decreased food. He had no companion. There were no more dogs left. Everything else from here on in would be him hauling the remainder of his supplies and fighting his way back, hopefully in time. He was truly alone on the ice. Now, his journey also was fraught with more problems. He, he wrote again in his journal that the, the sight of my feet gave me quite a shock for the thickened skin of the soul had separated in each case as a complete layer. He had actually wrapped this with lanolin and walked on his, his denuded feet with his soles glued back on. He had issues with snow blindness and treated himself with some eye drops that he had. He noticed that the hair was falling out and his beard came loose in tufts. And at one point he too fell into a crevasse, but he hung there from the rope tied to the uh, sledge. And he came to and hand over hand, he lifted himself up from the rope and almost made it to the top where he slipped and fell again, dangling unconscious, thinking this was the end. One more time, he forced himself to climb up out of the crevice and continue his journey back. Unfortunately, Gloomy Davis, captain of the Aurora, was given instructions to leave by early February. He held on for one more week, hoping that Mawson and his team would come, but by February 7th, he realized he had to leave if he didn't want to get stuck in the ice flows that were moving in. The next day, Mawson, a mere skeleton of himself, on February 8th, stumbled into base camp, having lost 97 pounds on his journey. And he looked terrible, and the skin was slopping off his face and his arms and his legs, and it, he was emaciated. The good news is, of course, that they had left six people at the base camp, hoping that Mawson and, in fact, everyone in his party would return. Um, Mawson had to tell them what had happened. 
He slowly recovered. He was nurtured back to health. He was fed. He had time to write some notes and journals and collect his thoughts. And 11 months later, the Aurora returned with the same captain and rescued seven of them and took them back to Australia. Now, I'm not the first person to come up with the theory what had happened to Mertz. Uh, this has been written about, it seems about every 10 years or so, the first group of folks was uh, Sir John Cleland and uh, Southcott, and uh, they wrote about hypervitaminosis in the Antarctic, and several people followed with adding little bits more to the story of what went on. Certainly, the, the symptoms of hypervitaminosis fit with many of the symptoms that Mertz and Mawson was experiencing, the diarrhea, the hair falling out, the skin peeling off, and even the CNS symptoms because hypervitaminosis A produces benign intracranial hypertension with headaches and visual field loss, and in fact can lead to altered mental status. The reason I got interested in it, because as part of the Alaska Poison Center, reading a little bit about histories of Alaska and the Arctic, uh, there's an entity uh, that the Inuit talk about called Piplakatak. It is uh, somewhat politically incorrectly referred to as Arctic or Inuit hysteria, but it's basically felt to be due to hypervitaminosis A, mostly from eating polar bear liver, which they advise and sort of as a taboo to not eat that part of the polar bear. But it's been described in phases. It has a prodromal phase over hours or sometimes days with sort of irritability and sudden occurrences of eventually wild hysteria are characterized by shouting and throwing things and tearing off one's clothes and putting one at risk for uh, harming themselves and being irrational. After that, it's usually followed by a seizure or a series of seizures. The person lapses into a coma and often dies. In a few cases, they recover. But certainly this fits very well with the few diary entries that Mawson made describing Mertz's cost as he de developed this fit and these screaming fits that he had before he had he died. So how much vitamin A could have Mertz had? Certainly we know the polar bear liver has huge amounts of uh, vitamin A in it. Um, Antarctic husky liver, not so much. From one study it showed here that it had just under one micromole per gram of liver. So we need to do a little bit of vitamin A and liver math here just for a second. The dog's liver weighs about 0.9 kilograms. So the vitamin A content in one study where they looked at 10 dogs was about 10,000 plus international units per gram. So doing a little bit of math that it gives us about nine and a half international, million international units of vitamin A per dog liver. Now they had six dogs and six livers. And if they split them each, that would each be 5.6 kilograms of liver over 23 days. So what's toxic? Anything more than one million units in an acute ingestion would produce benign to cranial hypertension and the symptoms of uh, toxicity. But the total amount of vitamin A contained in the six dog livers, if you've been following the, the math, was about 57 million international units of vitamin A. Even if you spread that out over all the days that they were eating, they each had more than that acute toxic amount, 1.2 million units of vitamin A per day, but they might not have eaten the same amount equally. People have postulated that Mertz was described in some uh, notices as being a quote, near vegetarian. 
And it was thought that maybe Mawson was letting Mertz eat more of the liver, which was more digestible, while Mawson ate more of the sinew and the marrow. Um, one of the last articles speculates that, you know, listen, Mertz was, was depressed. His best friend, Ninnis, had died. They were starving to death. They were exerting themselves. And in fact, Mawson in his journal writes uh, during this period, Mertz was not his usual cheerful self as usual. I'm at a loss to know the reason, for he was always such a bright and companionable fellow. And then many speculated as a book called Mawson's Will that came out in the last 20 years or so. He just had the will to live. And there's notes in Mawson's journal that he, he endeavored to see his dear fiance one more time and survive his trip back. Well, the story does have a happy ending. Of course, Mawson did make it back, although it took an extra year. And uh, March 31st, 1914, several years later, he did marry his fiance. When I was putting this uh, talk together, I was a little surprised because 70 years later, I too got married on that same day. No coincidence, I am sure. He went on and accumulated his notes and wrote a book about the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. Um, he published this in uh, three volumes. Um, this was a big book and a big uh, uh, reference book to Antarctic exploration. And uh, it was noted with some of the photos that some of the other parties had taken. He didn't have a camera, but some of the other sledging parties did, and they were included in the book. And this book has been edited down um, in a more readable form um, by others over the, over the years. Um, after you get married and write a book, what's next? He journeyed to England in 1914, and he was knighted by King George V and became Sir Douglas Mawson. Afterwards, he quietly returned home to the University of Adelaide, where he took a job teaching geology for the rest of his life. In the next 50 years, he taught there at the University of Adelaide going once more to the Antarctic as an advisor, but no sledging journeys. Outside of the Prince Henry Gardens of the University of Adelaide, there's a statue to Douglas Mawson, noting that first he was a professor of geology and last an explorer. But Australia has honored him in other ways as well. His face and likeness appear on the Australian $100 bill and the $5 stamp. And so, the next time your family drags you to dinner to your aunties and they make liver and onions and you're playing with your food and your mother says, Dougie, eat your food and stop playing with it. You can take a deep breath. Tell them the story. Thank you.